Welcome to Digital Metropolis, a podcast about the future of cities and those building it. We talk to cutting edge leaders in urban planning, technology and policy in order to understand the evolving implications of the space we inhabit. Tune in each week to learn about how digitized property, urban technology and artificial intelligence will transform the way you buy, work, move and imagine. My name is Roman Shemakov and you're listening to the Taiwan Report. Hi, will you please introduce yourself today? Sure. My name is Case Engelen, and I'm the CEO of Taitoma, which stands for Time to Market. So we are a product development firm in Taiwan doing electronic uh, product uh, design and manufacturing. It is great to be speaking with you today, Case. You already mentioned briefly the kind of work that you do. But just for our audience, could you explain more in detail what is IoT manufacturing and how is Tatoma different from other manufacturers in Taiwan? We are we're more like a consultancy. Western companies generally come to us with an idea, uh, a product that they need to have made. And then we, we take the whole project from end to end, from napkin sketch all the way to a shipped product. There's quite a few companies in Taiwan that do what we do on a much larger scale. Uh, there's the big laptop manufacturers. They make 95% of the world's uh, laptops. But we focus on embedded devices, which is a connected dog feeder with built-in webcam. Now I know you've spent more than 17 years in Taiwan, so this has become a, a new home for you. What was your journey to finding Totoma and specifically to Taiwan from Netherlands? I came here originally to learn the language some 25 years ago already, I think. Originally, I started working for a Western Dutch industrial design firm, helping Taiwanese companies and American companies like Polaroid and Gateway with their industrial design, making sure their, their products looked better so they would sell more. And I did that with quite an international team, which was really fun. I've always liked working in a very international uh, context. But after some five years, I, I wanted to have more control over the whole process and just be a consultant that say it would be nice if you would say so, but, but actually make sure that it really happens and that the whole design intent is implemented as it should be. And so that's when I started with a couple of friends, uh, Tertoma, some 17 years ago. And we've been going strong ever since. It's been a bit of an up and down, but uh, recent five years have been really good. That's great to hear. Has your Chinese also improved in the time? It has actually gone down. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here for a long time now. And in the first three and a half years, I had Chinese classes every day. It's the first nine months was, was like full-time Chinese. Mm -hmm. So I, I speak quite a bit of Chinese. But to be very honest, in my daily work, I, I with some of our the people working here, I, I speak in Chinese just because it's sometimes quicker, sometimes more fun. But it's not really needed because everybody here uh, speaks English as well. Yeah, that makes sense. That's the double-edged sword of Taiwan. You come here to learn Chinese and you don't always need to use it all the time. Yeah, I, I, I tell people you should you should find a, a partner who's not too ambitious about learning English. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice for our audience. So 
we have specialized and we've talked to many companies that focus specifically on smart cities. As you definitely know, IoT has become the central infrastructure of how people don't just discuss urban infrastructure, but how they imagine it as a whole. So how would you personally, through Totoma, define IoT? I don't have a very enlightened definition for it. I would just say connected devices. That's that's how I see it. And has this idea of connected devices or even the way you manufacture them changed over the last 25 years that you worked in the field? It's it's commoditized a lot, I think. In the beginning, everything was difficult and, and, and it had to connect and there had to be an app and there had to be a, a server and everything was difficult. Right now, a lot of the building blocks are there and on the hardware side, there, 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 there's lots of uh, reference designs out there. So it's become uh, a lot faster to get something up and running. So I think the the, the, the impact that has for a lot of hardware firms is is that hardware is is no longer really something you can build your competitive advantage on because any box with a sensor in it it can be replicated pretty easily the competitive advantage is going to be on everything that's around that the app the community the user base that you build up the database with all the data that you mine for useful results for the users that is what it's gonna give a long lasting advantage but yeah hey we're able to make a box with a sensor it's what we do but to be honest there's a lot of people who can do that especially uh, here in asia that makes sense so what have been the emerging opportunities in applying iot to solve different problems yeah there's many different applications. The IoT adoption in general has not gone f quite as fast as people had predicted. So there's all these lofty numbers that were thrown around 2020. <laughs> there's been a lot of people that were just doing a, guys, IoT, we, we need to do something with IoT. Uh, do an IoT project. We need some pilots. Okay, okay. And then <laughs> they, they get some guy they know and can you can you connect some sensors to us and just do a pilot but and okay that gets done and then very often it's what they call pilot purgatory nothing happens and of course what what a lot of people for, forgot to do is developing a, a a product and especially something still fairly convoluted iot product you need to have a very strong business case how is it going to make money and just like the internet will collect data and become rich with the underwear nicking gnomes so <laughs> <laughs> that's not a very straight route to profitability so uh, a very solid business case. I think that's that's what is essential. Like, how is this data going to help your company to give better service to your client, to give faster response, more uptime or whatever? Makes sense. So it's actually about solving problems than just creating random infrastructure. Just collecting underwear for the sake of underwear <laughs> collecting. Of course, is, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen any new business models emerge that have really transformed the way you do your work? I have. One of our clients had an interesting model where they installed 
their equipment. I need to be a bit anonymous here, but they installed it in in 95% of the premises. And, and then they would do a revenue share with their clients where they would get like 50% of the, uh, the uptick. And it's a bit of a seasonal business. So without that, there would always have been an argument on the weather and, and, and the holiday season. And But having this baseline of the 5% where the solution was not implemented makes it very clear uh, what the delta is the day they're providing. And so I thought that is a very smart way to, to, to measure your outcomes. Sorry, just so I'm clear, what is their, how are they collecting revenue to keep them anonymous? <laughs> they help sales of a seasonal business by advertising and by showing advertising. And, uh, and so basically, because it's a bit like selling airplane seats, if you don't sell them, they're, they're gone. So almost 80, 90% of all the extra revenue they create is, is margin. So that's why that's uh, very suitable for uh, a revenue share. That makes sense. Do a lot of your companies, a lot of your clients specialize in a particular industry or field? Most of them have their own core technology, can be RFID access systems or UVC curing, like hardening glue, for example. Actually, most of our clients, for them, we, we are enablers. They sell, for example, glue that needs to be hardened. And, and they just want to sell a lot of glue. And they do not want their clients to have every problem with the glue hardening devices. They just want to make very sure that they don't fail. And a company that's selling beer, they just want to make very sure that the beer stays at the right temperature mm-hmm. so they don't get complaints. We work with companies that are not necessarily hardware-centric themselves. We are like their their partner and they just say you guys take care of all that hardware we (laughs) want to focus on sales and building that community building that infrastructure building the app makes sense that makes sense now it also seems as you mentioned about iot there have been these auxiliary terms that are launched into the bucket of you know sophistry or marketing like 5g ai big data processing and on the surface it seems like these very revolutionary technology has a way to function through IoT to really transform the way people live. Are you and your company prepared for these changes or do you see them as still being very far out? We do lots of different kinds of RF radio from RFID to BLE to uh, Wi-Fi, 4G. So in a sense, going to 5G is just another module. Mm -hmm. It will enable uh, a lot more data at lower cost, 5G, when it's really rolled out in a significant way. And for example, we're doing a a dash cam for cars. And right now, if you want to send over full 4K data, that's a lot of data. It's a big charge in your data plan. And very soon that is going to be a lot more affordable. At the same time, edge computing is another trend that is actually a bit going in the other direction where a lot of the analysis is is done closer to the, the users or where the data is captured. So you don't need to send as much raw data up to the cloud for analysis there. But with, with 
microcontrollers becoming uh, a lot cheaper these days it becomes much more affordable to do analysis on the ground without using uh, rf so much the way you're making it sound is you're going to have a lot more orders for iot devices i do have to say the whole COVID thing has been quite an influence. It's impacted the economy worldwide. So naturally that also impacts us in the manufacturing orders. Although for some reason, there's still a lot of people, for some reason more even it seems that want to do new things. Maybe a lot of people now have time to think, what are we going to do next? What, what, what is going to be next episode? So that is that is going to be quite interesting. And we're also supporting some in some small ways, some COVID-related uh, devices. Uh, the university and a friend of mine is working on it. But uh, it will be interesting how we're going to get uh, all this under control. Here in Taiwan, we're, we're really good. I think we don't have seen a new case in the last 200 days. But we're, we're, we're a bit of a bubble here. And the rest of the world really it's going to take some time to get it all sorted out. I, I I agree. That's the elephant in the room. This is the only place in the world that <laughs> this is this is possible. We're actually going to be the ones that are the only ones in the world that do not have the herd immunity. And then a year from now, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there's a vaccine by then. Yes, so that's yes, not going to yes, be a concern. Yes. So it seems like the way you're describing it over the past 20 years, there has been a real decrease in the price of producing the hardware. And now we're seeing a decrease in moving of data and then processing it. If, if you look back to, to what uh, the first PCs looked like and the first, uh, the first supercomputers, and in, in terms of those capabilities, everybody carries a supercomputer in their pocket these days. Mm -hmm. And the smartphone has actually been a real driving force in making a lot of components such as cameras and, and, and memory and, and screens available at, at much lower prices because of the huge quantities. So the camera industry has really done a lot for the whole price curve. For ourselves as a company, a uh, big change that we have seen is that before we really worked a lot with with what I call ODMs, ODM suppliers, factories already making something. And for example, somebody needs a uh, display to display advertisement. Hey, well, I already know a factory in Taiwan making that. So let's work with them, give it a nice industrial design, adjust the firmware a little bit, interact with the, between the client and the factory. So everybody needs to, knows what needs to be done. That was initially our business model at the Toma. And it, 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 it worked okay, but it, it was just really slow. And we got a bit frustrated with that. And it took quite a while to say, why is it not working? Because if you're working with a factory already making, say, displays, they have the, the largest quantities because they're already making 100,000 a month. They exactly know how to design this kind of a product. They have seen product returns come back. So they know what kind of problems you could have. They have tested all the potential components so they know which components have the best value for money. They have designs 95% ready to go. So it's the fastest way to market. It's a really compelling case. But. <laughs> There's always a but. There's a but. It, it took a really long time to get it done. And, and the problem is that 
factories are not really focused on product development. Factories want to manufacture. They want to keep their production lines running at 98% capacity. And so if you have a new client with a new to the world product that is going to have a first order of 2000 units and at the same time Dell has an order for 50,000 units and there's a little issue that really needs to be solved because otherwise those 50,000 units as as the new product you're always going to be at the very bottom of their whiteboard of priorities and so it always took a really long time and ODM factories, they are optimizers, they're tweakers, but they're not really the, the sort of inventor types that you need to make something that is really new. That makes sense. And behind me here sits an amazing team that you found over the years. What has been your process for differentiating yourself specifically on the industrial design, the speed, the the, the quality? So we, we first worked very much with the outside factories got frustrated with that and then we started to build our own teams hardware firmware mechanical design all in the house and in the beginning that was very tough because people come to you and they say i want a likes counter how much will it cost to make that and and how long will it take and and what will the unit cost be and 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 it's really hard to estimate something that you've never made before so it took time to get good at that but we learned so now we're really at a stage where we have uh, solid processes in place for everything. And I was very lucky that I found uh, a really good CTO, Leo. Yeah, he really built up uh, the teams. In the beginning, we always had a, a very international crew, like half Taiwanese and half foreigners from, well, I'm from Holland. There's people from El Salvador, from Colombia from France, from South Africa. It's quite an international mix here. But we are still, if you compare it with our neighbor across the road, uh, Acer, we're still a, a pretty small company. And we had some problems finding good engineers, specifically for firmware. That was really hard to find. Leo is from Colombia. He has a really good relation with the university there. It's like the, the MIT of Colombia. It's not very well known for electronics, but there's 48 million people there. We got a really good relation because the professors there said, wow, one of us has become CTO of an international company. Oh, uh, can you do more of that? And so we started the trainee program where every year we get the top 10 graduates Five at a time, we bring them to Taiwan for half a year of training here in our Taiwan office, then bring them back and continue in Colombia. That has been working out very well because, yeah, everybody is, is trained in, in our systems. That is really nice because it means that everybody works in the same way. It's a bit like uh, the Borg from uh, Star Trek, which is really helpful because in the past, we've had a case where we had a very complex project with 16 custom PCB boards. And the key firmware engineer for that project, he was a bit older and he suddenly got an eye problem. And his wife said, you have to stop working now. And he stopped within the week. And we had a really hard time picking up that project again and get it on the road again, because 
if somebody is, is working to his own standards, it's, it's really hard to dig into somebody else's firmware unless he follows a very well-defined structured method. So we have done all that defining and structuring and, and now people are yeah, almost interchangeable. And that means if suddenly a project is really urgent, then we can add more people to the team. If somebody goes on a honeymoon for three weeks, somebody else can take over and so on. So that has really made our whole process a lot more reliable. Just for clarity, how does Totoma distinguish hardware, firmware from software? So hardware is for us the the PCBs, the printed circuit boards with the electronic components on them. The firmware is the software that, that runs on these PCBs. But because we're working with not with Pentium-like chips, but with microcontrollers, and in these smaller microcontrollers, every microcontroller has its own language and you really need to optimize very much for that particular piece of microcontroller and the components that work with it so that's what we call embedded design and so embedded design you have a really close link between the firmware and the hardware and the engineers sit side by side to make that work well the difference with a PC is that somebody in India can write the software and somebody in Taiwan can make a PC box and it will work together because Microsoft is in between. That is what they call the, the hardware abstraction layer. That is the, the big connector. Software, backend software, that's what you run on the, the servers on AWS, Amazon. In general, when we make an IoT device, we we make a skeleton app, a very basic bridge between the hardware device and uh, the server. And then our clients that are in Alabama or in Germany or in San Francisco, they do the app there themselves and they work with focus groups and they tweak and tweak. But that is, that is sort of a disconnected effort, not disconnected, but they can do that separately from our hardware. Makes sense. To shift gears a little bit, it seems like your company is very focused on the future in terms of human capital. You're working with all of these bright students from Colombia. How are you conceptualizing the industrial future? In a lot of conversations about smart cities, people are envisioning this world in which every street is able to communicate with each other automatically, every light pole, every car. And there are obligatory questions of you know, what kind of material are you using? Will these devices be viable in five years and 10 years and 20 years? Are we going to have to throw them all out every decade and then rebuild them? So how does Totoma think about sustainability and kind of designing for 20 years from now? That, that is a tough question because hardware, future-proofing your hardware, that always it sounds good, but it's always been really hard. And when we've done that in the past, it... it yeah, somehow the technology always develops a bit different than you thought it would and or the use case and people suddenly find this feature really important and future-proofing hardware is really difficult, I, I feel, and it's best to work in a modular approach where you can 
yeah, connect a different radio module, connect a different camera. That is going to give you the more flexibility for the future, I think. And in terms of housings in general, you can count on things becoming a bit smaller every so many years. So you don't have to oversize your housings too much, uh, but it does it does make sense to leave some space for these kind of eventualities because having to change out your, your, your phone every two years or so, it is a big waste of a lot of resources. There's a fair phone out now by a Dutch firm that is actually modular. And you can just, unless you drop it, your, your display is probably still going to work. But you may want to upgrade to 5G. But then on the other hand, people are going to say, but if you have 5G, you have so much more data, you probably also want a bigger processor. And and you also want a higher resolution screen. So uh, a lot of it is, is still developing in, in sync. So it's hard to predict where we will be uh, 20 years out. Of course. And... You're not in the business of fortune telling, I suspect. <laughs> and there often is a certain fashion chasing in technology companies, both in terms of addressing consumer needs that are constantly evolving, but simultaneously creating new perceptions and new interactions with your devices. Has Totoma evolved in the way you understand IoT, in the way you design the hardware, the firmware? The big thing is we're a service company. People come to us and say, hey, this needs to be happen. This is what we feel needs to be done. And then we say, okay. <laughs> and we do a lot of suggestions. So you can better do it this way or that way. And we found this amazing module that is really a uh, good value for money. Why don't you use that instead of insisting on this one that is three more times as expensive? Mm-hmm. But for for. Us personally as a company, what has changed more is that we did a lot of consumer projects and quite a few startups. And in consumer, there's this relentless race to the bottom in terms of price. It's really hard to win that. Uh, Nobody wants to win a race to the bottom. And so that is uh, a reason that we are now uh, almost entirely focused on uh, B2B business where reliability is a lot more uh, important because in in B2B businesses, people do not want uh, to have returns because it's really expensive to uh, have stuff replaced. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'd love to ask about your choice of Taiwan. You've written recently about the outflow or supposed outflow of companies from China and how it's not actually panning out right? Many companies are staying behind. There's this conversation of a decoupling. We're talking as an election is happening in the United States. What is the the evolving role of Taiwan in these the, the companies across the world and their technical understanding? In electronics, you've seen there's a lot of animosity towards China recently. And a lot of clients come to us and say, no, we really do not want to have anything made in China anymore. And yeah, I, I, I agree with many of the points and, and China. Frankly, I've been in Taiwan for 25 years now. A lot of my friends moved over to China. And I'm very happy that I didn't. I feel it's becoming a bit of a difficult place to live there with uh, the whole social control and all that. But in terms of electronic manufacturing, the thing is, 
China over the last 25 years has built up such a, a mass of factories of, of electronic components, uh, especially that is something that nobody is going to replace within the next five or 10 years. A lot of people have done their due diligence. Yeah, can you quote me this in Vietnam, in Malaysia and in Taiwan? But if they are already making something in China and they would have to redo the injection molds, very often they don't, don't own the design. The, the design is actually owned by a factory in China, so they would have to completely redesign that whole device. That is uh, a big investment. And then they do all that investment and then they go to a different country. The costs in that other country are going to be higher, actually, than they're going to be in China. So there, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of due diligence and studies. But And if you look at the big companies like the, 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 the Samsungs, they have moved all their Samsung-owned plants out of China and they're going to India and, and to Indonesia or wherever. And, and those are very high-profile cases and they're really big and they have a big influence also on the export numbers. But if you're making a million phones per month or per week, anytime you set up a new factory in India, you can just say to your top 20 suppliers, hey guys, we're going to go to India. Uh, I need you to also build uh, a plant next to our plant to give me your custom housings and your customized displays and your customized PCBs and your customized cable trees. And so they, they get their top 20 factories to all come with them. And with that kind of a business volume, you can just demand that of your suppliers. But if you're producing 5,000 units of this or that uh, a month, then, then there's not many people who are going to come with you to Myanmar. And I feel that the, the perception in the media is a bit skewed because of these big phone companies. The majority of the, the companies now manufacturing in China are just stick it out there because it's you get tremendous value for money in china and you will continue to do what may happen is that final assembly may move so it may move to taiwan a lot of it has moved to taiwan it may move to malaysia or uh, thailand or, or mexico or even the us but that is final assembly that is basically taking that circuit board with the components on it and and screwing it into a plastic box and that but very often 70 percent of the, the value of a product an electronic product is in the electronic components all those those pcbs and, and cable trees and displays and for that there's just no better supplier than china so we were talking about so final assembly you can actually do anywhere it doesn't matter we were we have an office in colombia where we're actively looking at options there also to be closer to our u.s customers but the components that make up 70 percent of the value of a device i think the majority of that is still going to come from china because in china for every component that there are 10 different factories that make it and especially in the design stage when you don't know exactly yet which components you're going to use and from which suppliers. It's really handy to be here and, and uh, have 10 suppliers 
here around our office in uh, in Taiwan or around our factory in uh, Shenzhen that we can go to and see what's possible there. And if our favorite supplier suddenly turns out to double his prices, oh, we didn't quite understand it. No problem, because next door, there's another guy making the exact very similar device. And that keeps everybody very, very relationship focused. They really want to do their best for you. They, they work very really fast. They work with really low minimum orders. And then basically they all are competing with each other. So they give you really good value for money. And yet or so they, they don't have anywhere close to that. And the big thing with electronics is that if one of your 187 components is missing, your line is blocked. For the next five years, I still think China will continue to play a really important role. Hmm. Now, what do you think makes Taiwan such an ideal location to move Final Assembly to? Or to move your company's operation as a whole? Taiwan is a really nice place to live. And we have quite a lot of international staff. And so they all like it here. Very happy here for the last 25 years it's you don't imagine that but it's actually very green uh, behind me we have nice green mountains there, there there's jungle with waterfalls and all that but even more importantly the people are really friendly really helpful if you've lost in the city they will take you by the hand and take you to blacks to to take you where you need to go that's it's quite different from china really and in a business sense taiwanese companies are a lot more reliable to to work with and of course you have bad apples everywhere but it's really interesting to see if you look at if you look at hp and dell and cisco and and all the big brands they are working with taiwanese firms and so apple you would expect that the procurement guy the 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 head of purchasing of apple is going to say i'm going to go factory direct that's not what he does. He says, uh, he goes to Taiwan. He says, dear Mr. Foxconn, please go build for me a factory with a million workers and build it for me in China. And, and I want you to run it. And that's because there's a reason for that. They, they have had some bad experiences in the past. And if you go for this approach of having both the design and the, the manufacturing done by one firm, which for many reasons makes a lot of sense because it's a lot faster, you get better components, you get a lot better value for money. Anytime there is an issue with any of the components, the the communication is just so much better here. So it makes all the sense in the world if you're going to manufacture here to also do the design here. But you're putting a lot of power in in the hands of one factory, hands of one company. So... You need to be able to really trust that uh, company and make sure they're not going to do a a Huawei on you. Yeah. Speaking of, what are your thoughts on this very literal delinking and Huawei now building their own factories to develop microchips? The thing with with, with Huawei was that Cisco had their uh, routers uh, made by them uh, before. And then they said, hey, you guys have all these uh, 700 engineers sitting here. Why don't you also uh, design the next generation for us and make sure that you pay attention to this. That, okay, okay, okay. 
And that worked well for a couple of years until Huawei suddenly came out with their own brand of routers. And apparently in their first manual, uh, the first manual was so verbatim copied that the helpline number in the US, if you rang that number, it was answered by Cisco still. <laughs> so they didn't appreciate that. That was an, an, a case of where outsourcing went horribly wrong. And so you have to be very careful about who you pick. Now, basically, I think 70% of the world's electronics is coming out of China now for those reasons of components and, and basically for the, the whole mass of not only components, but also the talent, the mold makers, the, the glass makers, the camera lens makers, all the expertise is here all so close together and they all talk with each other. It's, it's really the, the Silicon Valley of, of hardware in Shenzhen and still also in around Taipei. So the decoupling, decoupling Huawei. So the US is, has realized recently that actually 70% of the components come out of China, but ICs is the key factor where China's behind. Of all the ICs that be, are being put into electronic devices in China, only about 15, 16% are being put uh, in there from local Chinese manufacturers. And maybe 60% comes out of Taiwan. And they've realized, ah, the ICs, that's really the key components and that's where we can keep them in a chokehold. And so they have forced TSMC, which is the world's biggest manufacturer of uh, ICs in the world, to stop selling ICs to, which is a very, very drastic and very aggressive move, very interventionist, but that's what's been done. Huawei, they're now saying that they are actually saying that built the 5G, which they're pretty good at, they're going to come with their own operating system, which is some sort of a diffused computing system where because of the, the high data capacity of, of 5G, basically it will be like a, a, a hive of small phones that all compute together for you. And so they don't need those really strong processors anymore. So that way they supposedly can sidestep the, the high-end processors that are being made by TSMC. I'm, I'm not really sure how that is going to play out. But so far... For the last five years already, China has been really stimulating the local IC industry in China with, with billions of investment and it has barely moved the needle there. But on the other hand, they're, they're very smart people and they have managed to catch up in, in nearly everything else. So eventually they're going to get there. You can well argue that by decoupling the urge for them to build their own IC infrastructure is going to be even higher. Do you envision a very aggressive separation where you don't have an iron curtain, but it's just a silicon curtain where all of the Chinese supply management is within China proper? No, because it's actually a lot of clients that are saying, Mr. Wang, I, I really would like to continue to buy your uh, fabulous gadgets, but I need you to have a factory in Indonesia or in Thailand or wherever, because 
I cannot afford to pay those 25% or, or 50%, whatever it's going to be. So that is going to be a powerful push to do final assembly in other countries. And final assembly is, it's you cannot just do transshipping, like just put a sticker made in Vietnam on it, because there is a legal criterion called a significant uh, transformation. And so something really needs to happen in, in Vietnam or in Taiwan. Some people argue that even putting a PCB inside a box is not enough of a transformation yet. Um, so it's well possible that you need to import all the electronic components, put them on a PCB here in Taiwan, put the housing around it and then ship it out. And then you are completely safe, I would say. Thank you so much, Case, for taking the time to, to talk with us. This has been fascinating. Do you expect to stay in Taiwan? Uh, yes, I am married here with uh, lovely children, lovely wives, and we are very happy here. So yes, I do think. Great. And just as the last question, what is your favorite Taiwanese dish? Yeah, the Kung Bao Chi thing. It's not very original, but it's... Uh, Tried it's, and true. Yeah, it's, it's chicken with the cashew nuts and a lot of red peppers. It looks really scary but it's not all that spicy at all. And it's actually really good. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Great for, uh, great having, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. 喜欢我的台湾狗了